Hey everyone, this is Meredith Carey, and you are listening to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveler. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Sally Aracoglu. Hello. I actually said your name out loud this time. <laughs> Today, we are joined by two of our dearly beloved friends over at Bon Appetit. You have heard from one of them before, my fellow Dallas girl, Priya Krishna, who called in from a parking garage last time. Parking garage in Long Island City. <laughs> Perfect. We thought you were joking until you like <laughs> FaceTimed in, and it really was a parking lot. <laughs> Um, she is the author of Indianish, which will hit bookstores in April, and Carla Music, Bon Appetit's food director, whose cookbook, Where Cooking Begins, is out this March. Carla, thank you for joining My us. My pleasure. If you haven't guessed, based on the fact that both of them have upcoming cookbooks, and by the plugs that I just gave them, we are talking today about travel through the lens of cooking. And so as a reformed picky eater, I have a question for you both, which is what trip, like iconic trip, made you fall in love with a brand new food? So 10 years ago, my husband and I were invited to a wedding in India, uh, which I had dreamed of like getting to go to an Indian wedding. And then it really happened. And we turned the event of the wedding into like a two week trip. Um, we went to Mumbai and we went to Delhi and we went to lots of spots in between. And that is where I first had Italy. Priya will know what these are, which are little Ugh, steamed. One of my favorite foods of all time. I had never had them. They're little <laughs> steamed like rice and dal and um, fenugreek, I think. Little tiny steamed round pancakes that were on a lot of the, the breakfast buffets and always with like a spicy coconut chutney or some other kind of hot you know, condiment, spicy condiment. And so I fell in love with the pancakes, but also just with the idea of savory breakfast. Mm -hmm. um, and then came home and I was like, we have to make Italy and like look them up and try to figure it out. I went to Calustian's and was like, well, I don't have the right pan to make the perfect <laughs> little, they're like little UFO shaped yep, kind that's of. that's exactly. Um, <laughs> and I was like, that's fine. I'll just figure. And they, you know, I could never replicate it, but still I think that, Savory breakfast was something that stayed with us after that. Wait, Carla, can I tell you something? When I was in Delhi last, I found this contraption in a grocery store. It was like a beat up box and it said it was an Italy maker that could also make like pizza and cake. And I, I asked the lady in Hindi and of course, like she was just like, yes, I can make anything you want. And so Amazing. I bought it. It was 50 <laughs> rupees, like which is $2 basically. And it has been the most life changing. No like, way. For most Indians, like the idea of making Italy, like that's a weekend project. Right. Like the you don't. Recipes are just yeah, like it's soak insane. the rice, drain the rice, pulverize yeah. the rice, <laughs> ferment the rice. It's like <laughs> I think you want to breakfast today. <laughs> However, <laughs> this Italy maker allows you to make one minute microwave Idlis that taste as fluffy as as my mom's. And wow. I literally like had my parents over to my apartment in New York because they did not believe me. I made them Idlis and I made somber in my instant pot. I made a little chutney, and they were like. This is a magic device. <laughs> the magic Idli And box. so like when I'm working from home, it's the ultimate luxury oh for to make Idlis for lunch. It's do the greatest you, thing. Do you buy the like Idli mix? Yeah, but you have to know there's like there's good the brands right and bad yeah. brands. And then I mix. So most people do water. I mix like a little bit of uh, watery yogurt into it, which gives a little bit more bounce. And so you kind of figure out your way to like doctor up the mix and make it taste a little bit more homemade. But like no one I know is like fermenting the bat like right. that's not a thing that people 
I mean, people that I know do, but yeah. I'll make you at least some time. Okay. Yeah, I was about to say, meet up at Brianna's yeah. apartment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, can I come over? Exactly. Did your parents go out and try and find this contraption? Uh, no, it was just in this random department store in India, so I don't know if it's available <laughs> in the States. Have you made um, any of the other things? That the it pizzas, cakes, and pies. Yeah. Well, I mentioned this to an editor once, and she was like, can you try to make just like crazy flavors of Idlis yeah. in that? So I tried making a pumpkin spice Idli. And it, it, it turned out it's terrible. Like you definitely should not be making. It reminds me of those yeah. little hand pie makers. They're kind of like waffle yes, irons, yes. but you like put the dough in and then the filling, and it will like seals it. Yeah. And Priya, what about? Yeah, my- I'm assuming it wasn't just that. <laughs> no, I I knew about Italy's all along. My big experience was when my family got to go to Egypt, and that was the first time I'd had fresh pita straight out of the oven with hummus. And I just remember so distinctly being in Cairo, being at this restaurant and this woman pulling pita out of the bread oven. And it was just sort of like steamy and delicious. And I'd only had roti, which is like a little bit more of a flat thing, like sort of pita's got a little bit more of a three-dimensional aspect to it. It's sort of a little bit charred and burnt. So it was sort of familiar, but different. And then they gave us the hummus, which they drizzled with oil and put this like Kashmiri red chili powder on and I just remember eating that, like swiping that pita through that hummus and thinking it was like the greatest thing ever. And now, obviously, this is before the days of Sabra and dessert mm-hmm. hummus. And I just thought that hummus was the, the greatest thing I'd ever tasted. And with that pita, it was just totally mind-blowing. It's funny. One of my earliest food memories is being on holiday with my family in Turkey and being at this house where they had this like wood oven built outside in this back garden and there there was this old woman like making pita bread and cooking it in there and she like gave me some and it was just like like burnt my hands because it was so mm. freshly out of there and that smell and it's mm-hmm. so pillowy and soft when you bite into it Ugh. and so then I went good. back to England and all the pita was shit <laughs> <laughs> well and you were talking about coming home and just trying your best to recreate something again reform picky eater horrible home cook do you guys just come back and think, okay, I have to recreate all of these amazing things that I ate on my last trip? Well, I don't, but my mother does. <laughs> I sort of, <laughs> I'm like very reliant on my mom to do that. And she is the queen of recreating. Like we went to Tuscany and we ate ribolita for the first time. And it, again, it was one of those moments where I was like, this is incredible. And so my mom came home and she made ribolita, but my mom's big thing, and this is sort of a premise of the book, is like adding these Indian flourishes. So her ribolita had double the vegetables, plus some ginger, plus chopped green chilies in it, which of course I'm sure any Tuscan person would be like completely horrified by, but this is how my mother wanted to adapt it to her tastes. The same thing happened. We had this amazing, we went to Vermont and had, this is like one of my earliest food memories. I was like five or six years old. We had these puff pastries, that were filled with like mushrooms cooked in sherry and cream. And it was like one of, to this day, I think is one of the greatest things I've ever eaten. This restaurant doesn't exist anymore. And my mom like had never had puff pastry before. So she literally like studied puff pastry for weeks and recreated this thing for me. And it was sort of like how she showed love was like, we went on these trips, we had these dishes that we loved and she would come home and spend weeks trying to recreate it and I mean, those are just some of my best food memories from growing up. 
Yeah, I basically am the complete opposite. Usually, <laughs> and I don't know why. I think like being on vacation and eating something on vacation like stays in the vacation and nothing tastes the same, you know? Like you could drink a Coke in, you know, on the beach in the French Riviera <laughs> and you're like, this tastes totally different than Coke anywhere else, you know? And if And you just can't like recreate that. So usually for me, it'll come up way later. Um, and especially working at Bon Appetit, you have this ability to hang on to food ideas or mm -hmm. recipes. Like it'll percolate, like, you know, everything that's happening is maybe f I, you're in the moment, but like, maybe it's for something. So a lot of times it'll come up way later. Like, Oh, well, there, yeah, actually when I was in Rome, I had this insane dish of pasta that like, now we're going to do a page in one travel issue and it's like wanting an iconic dish and then it'll come up and then you get to go back and recreate it. But usually when I get home, I want home cooked food. And usually I, I, the first thing I'll make is like, um, pasta, aglio, olio, um, and just have like a dish of pasta when I get back. Yeah. Cause I'm curious. Cause we actually like pulled our editors last year and asked what everyone's like go to stop on the way home to get food was when they like land back in the U.S. And I have a very distinct Texas. I stop at Torchies. Mikasina? Oh, okay. no, I wish. <laughs> I, see, like I don't have the time to sit. <laughs> Love Miko. Um, I don't have the time to sit and wait for them to bring no, out you like can all call, of my. You can call while you're at the airport mm -hmm. and they will have it ready for you. I've done this many oh, times. My God, Bria, you're changing my life. <laughs> um, and I also like at that point would want a mambo taxi, which is like half sangria, half margarita. Yeah. Like, I, like there are things that I would want to commit to if I went to Miko. Um, but I go to Torchies Tacos and get the same order every time I get two green chili pork and one trailer park with queso on it. I can confirm having been taken <laughs> to Torchies by oh, Meredith. Wow. It's quite a place. But do you have somewhere that you go either when you come back to New York or when you go back to Texas that is like your go-to on your way home from a trip? When I come back to New York, all I want to do is make dal chowl. So that's what I make immediately. I like cook some rice and then put dal in the instant pot. That is like my, I, I don't want to go out to eat. I just want to eat dal yeah, chowl. Same. But if I'm home, I guess it's either dal chowl, but if I'm home in, if I'm in Texas, Mikosina is is the alternative. Mikosina is this Tex-Mex chain that um, I've written about in Bon Appetit that just is so nostalgic for all Texans who grew up in the 90s. Yeah, it's not even the best Tex-Mex restaurant, but it is like the, the best like in the our most hearts. It's the yeah. <laughs> Do you have a place when you go back to London, Lolly? I thought you were going to ask New York, and I was like, that drive from JFK yeah, to anywhere yeah, in the Where did you stop? It is disheartening, yeah. yeah. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm just like, get me back on the plane. I yeah. regret all my decisions about yeah. moving here. Um, in London, I always want to go to my favorite pub, which is around the corner from my parents' house called The Cow, and they have this crab pasta, which is just like rich and tomatoey and spicy and crabby and delicious and I love mm. it and I get it every time and then I'll also get a side of a half pint of prawns and they're like the peel mm. and eat prawns and they're wow. a little mayo thing that you dip in them which is a very English thing that you can get in pubs and I really think it should spread mm -hmm. elsewhere it's not a bar snack here yeah, yeah it's just a pint <laughs> no. glass stuffed with <laughs> shrimp amazing it's great <laughs> add it to your dinner parties yeah. <laughs> and that's always what I want to do my mom always just that's where we go as soon as I get back so I'll be doing that next weekend when I go home. Oh, gosh. Carla, what about you? When I get home, yeah, I don't want to go out to eat anywhere. I I just miss home and kind of want to be home. And I think also mm -hmm. it's like 
it's not like pulling off what in sounds York, like it's harder yeah yeah like yeah. a freeway experience <laughs> where you're just like, yeah i'm like imagining just like the when you're coming oh it over the bqe and it's just like, yeah. like why do we live here you know and then you just need like the come but it sounds like that's what you make too you make this comfort yep. food yeah definitely carla you kind of touched on this a little bit when you're sort of yearning to go back to a place um, that you've traveled to and visited or somewhere you love, is there a dish that you cook that sort of at least can sort of send you back there a little bit? So in my cookbook, there's a few recipes that have been inspired. It's just funny because it's not like any kind of a glamorous far away travel. But for a bunch of years in a row, we rented this little house in Montauk on Long Island. My family, I have two sons, my husband, and we would always go the end of July, early August. And it's just like the best produce time of year and the ocean and just every day kind of being able to cook from things were incredibly fresh and actually the way that I the way that I shop and cook when we were out there on these just family vacations was very much the inspiration for my book sort of learning that like that was the way that all the best food that I make sort of happens you know without a plan but knowing that there's just great stuff in the market and so a lot of times I would shop for produce without having a plan of what I was going to make for dinner and then picking up going either to Gossman's for seafood or like into another place in town to get meat and really just buying what looked good and not thinking about it much further than that and then cook cooking meals that were just so satisfying because they were improvisational but everything that we bought was so incredible so in the book I have um there's a pasta with a like a burst tomato sauce and mm. lobster, which somehow when you're on vacation, the idea of like just buying two lobsters to split among four people, it seems like normal. <laughs> um, and with just fresh tomato and um, garlic and basil. And there was another dish. Another one of my favorites is um, it's a really tiny house with a tiny little kitchen, but there's um, a gas fired grill outside. So... What I'll do is take a cast iron skillet and put it on that grill grate because it's actually electric grills are, I mean, gas grills are great for like, they're really even. You just turn them on. You don't have to wait. Um, And so I'll do steamed clams and ginger and garlic and like Mm. olive oil and butter in the cast iron pan outside. So like just that sensation of kind of the sun going down and you're still in your kind of wet bikini and maybe you already had a glass of wine and cooking on the deck um so that place like and that style of cooking really inspires me a lot I have a lot of just Mm. um love for those those summers like taught me also it was a really tiny refrigerator so it taught me to like just buy for today and tomorrow so like Mm. whatever we ate for dinner would spill over into breakfast and lunch and then we would just repeat it I know it's a fantasy but sometimes like getting yourself back to like that ideal is a good inspiration. Yeah. Do you wow. have a favorite dish to remind you of a trip you've taken before? I mean, those Idlis remind me of like being back and but being back in Delhi and that being a thing that you can just eat every single day. I would say like my fondest eating memories are often have to do with being in Delhi where my family is from and being at my great aunt's house and whatever she cooks me is 
just like the best thing I could possibly be eating at this moment. Like she makes this amazing scramble, which there's an adapted version in my cookbook where she's crumbles up paneer and scrambles it with a bunch of turmeric and lime and ginger and cumin and then these like really thinly, thinly sliced green beans. And then she serves it over over breakfast. And then she puts bujia, which are sort of these crispy, like sprinkle-like savory potato crisps that you put over it. Like I love eating that. Usually I'm like, I play fast and loose with street food when I'm in India. And so in order, in order to like coat my stomach with a probiotic layer, she will make <laughs> me like a salty lassi. That's sort of yogurt, ice that she blitzes with um, curry leaves and ginger and chilies. And it'll sort of, I'll like drink two cups of that and then like brave the street food and she'll like say a prayer at home mm-hmm. that I don't come home with diarrhea. <laughs> um, and just, I just have these amazing memories of sitting at her table. Like even, you know, when I'm sick, she makes me a packet of instant Maggie noodles, which are sort of the Indian version of instant ramen. And that taste just, the taste reminds me of like being very ill in India and being taken care of. And whenever I'm really ill in New York, I will make myself a packet of Maggie noodles. And she kind of doctors them up with some pepper and some chili sauce and things like that. So I feel like those those meals shared around that table in Delhi in that house are just yeah very sentimental for me. Out of interest, do you have a sort of strategy when you're going out to eat street food because I'm assuming yeah. you're there and you're like I want to try everything does that work does the lassi work <laughs> yes. oh no no <laughs> it, it doesn't really work like I basically just go to India knowing that I'm going to get sick like I right. basically like account for like a day of being sick I'm going to India in March and I'm very much like I feel like I've eaten a lot of this is the first time I'm going to India since I've become a food writer so I'm thinking maybe my stomach has like I have a stomach of steel now I don't know magically happened overnight but um, <laughs> makes me re- you know Rick yeah, Martinez yeah. who's a contributor to Bon Appetit also and he is Mexican American and he can he didn't grow up in Mexico but he like magically can go there he's like oh I can eat anything and nothing happens yeah, I'm like that is not fair that. you know yeah, he like eats every single street food the yeah. general rule in India is no water products. Like there's a dish called bani puri, which are like little crisps filled with tamarind water and um, potatoes and chickpeas. And that water you definitely don't want to yeah. have. All my yogi friends told me I was so nervous about getting sick because mm-hmm. we were also traveling like my son turned five while we were there. Oh, gosh. And, I, you know, we were moving around a lot. And yeah. um, my husband actually got really violently ill. But all of my yogi friends had been like a million times to my, they'd all been to my store like eight times, yeah. 10 times. I was like, I'm nervous. They're like, what? I'm like, I'm afraid I'm going to, you know, just get sick from the food. And everyone told me to eat vegetarian, strictly vegetarian. And also to be careful of like chutneys and stuff on the street could have like be thinned with water. And I ate vegetarian and I was a hundred percent fine. So was my son and my husband, the thing that did him, it was this, a chicken tikka that like I almost took a bite of one night at dinner. He was like, here, try it. And I was like, okay, I wasn't going to eat meat while I was here, but, and it was like halfway to my mouth. And I was like, you know what? I just don't feel like it. And the next day he was like, it was (laughs) wow. Yeah. I don't know. Like I've, I eat mostly vegetarian. I'm in New York when I'm in uh, India and it doesn't, it doesn't seem to help. My brother-in-law, my brother-in-law, David, who lived in India for three months and is not Indian, he told me this insane story about how he couldn't say no to a street vendor. He accidentally ate 30 pani puris, which oh are like my God. this. And like, that is like, I was just like, when a I heard that, I was volume. like, were you, yeah, a large volume of like unclean water. 
and nothing happened. Wow. It was like this miracle. It's so interesting because when I'm in, in Turkey, I never drink the tap water because my poor little English raised stomach will just, you know, terrible <laughs> things happen. My dad hasn't lived in Turkey in like 45 years and he'll just pour himself a glass of water from the tap yeah. and gulp it down and he's fine. Absolutely fine. Yeah, it's so strange. And the funny thing is, like, my sister and I are the least, we're, we're, we'll, we'll eat whatever. But my parents, when they go to India, they're, they won't eat, they won't eat or drink anything. And I'm like, you guys grew up here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm interested to know then if you are going to India for the first time as a food writer, do Mm -hmm. you think you're going to experience it differently? So I'm going to report a story. So it's the first time I'm going to India sort of as a reporter. So I think that will be interesting in that, like, from a purely practical standpoint, when I go to India, I feel obligated to go to all these parts of India, see my cousins, but I logistically can tell them that I'm here in a strictly journalistic capacity and I can't see, I can't, like, travel to Pune to go see them or go to Bombay. Like, I have to stay in Delhi. It's a Delhi story. So I guess I'm excited for the first time in my life to experience Delhi as a tourist. Mm. Speaking of visiting somewhere as a tourist, I'm curious... Because we talk about like what makes a great souvenir and food is usually like last mm-hmm. on the list. It is like really hard to buy for somebody else and it's really hard to travel with. Do you guys souvenir shop for like food items when you're traveling? Oh, I yes. definitely do. That's yes. one of my favorite things to do is like go to a supermarket. I'm like the one who's like, let's just dick, duck into this. Yep. Su- and my husband's like, this looks like a basic supermarket. I'm like, yeah, but they have different stuff. <laughs> it's just totally different. I even do that when I'm in the States. Like I was in Colorado a few years ago for a story and went into, you know, the equivalent of like the stop and shop. And I was totally blown away. I was like, they had Jack in the baking aisle and they had the fresh chili assortment in the thing and I was like we think we have it all here in New York we have like we don't we don't and Mm -hmm. I was like this is living but I think it's just (laughs) like the the combination of the packaging I love looking at the prices and then there's like just different it's just different stuff I'm like ooh, their mayonnaise is different Mm -hmm. and their this is different like it doesn't even matter the cereal it it doesn't even matter I just walk around the stores like fascinated so it's fun when we're when we're wherever we are like different kinds of chips and snacks and stuff like that it's more and more rare now but the idea that you would find something that you just absolutely can't get here right which like 15 years ago when you traveled there wasn't you know amazon didn't have like every single thing you could think of so you would go somewhere and be like you actually can't get this anywhere else you know it's like the um, the butter that everybody comes back mm-hmm. from Paris with that yep. yuzu butter in their backpack or whatever. But yeah, that's what I'm kind of looking for a thing I've never seen before. Yeah. yeah our office goes for candy, which is like mm-hmm. the go-to that's, like is yeah. foreign candy. But our coworker Molly came back from Portugal with an entire suitcase filled with canned fish. <laughs> but that, that makes sense. Yeah. That's yeah. like the thing. <laughs> Probably in very beautiful tins. Yeah. Great. Well. Yeah. 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 Amazing like you don't tins. even want to open them. Yeah. Do you have a go-to, Priya? So I agree with Carlin that, like, packaged snacks are a big fascination for me. One of the things I'm most excited about going to India is Lay's Magic Masala chips. Mm. It's a brand of – it's a flavor of Lay's chips you can only get in India. You can buy them on Amazon if you pay, like, $30 (laughs) in shipping. But, like, it's literally like a – in India, I think it maybe costs, like, 10 cents for a bag. And these chips are, like – the greatest potato chips I've ever had in my life. They are coated with like 
Amchur and Afsafatita. And I, I think it's mostly just like it's like chaat masala plus and they're just like really tangy and spicy and like, uh, they're just so good. And I can't wait to bring back like a suitcase full of Lay's Magic Masala chips. But like I, I'm similar to Carla when I go anywhere. I always go to the grocery store. My mom and I are fascinated by sort of like just buying random assortments of things. Also, like at grocery stores, things are never like the most you might pay. You're not going to like it's not like going to a fancy restaurant. Like sort of the barrier to entry is low. Like I will pay like five dollars for this like strange looking package because I'm just curious and it's fine. I'm not like throwing money away. So, yeah, I recently did this hiking trip started in France and I went through Italy and Switzerland. It's called the Tour de Mont Blanc. And every little town we went to, the first thing I did was go to the grocery store and it was just the most exciting time. Yeah. You were talking about, you know, going somewhere for a couple of weeks and cooking a lot when you were in Montauk. How much do you cook in your Airbnb slash rental because most hotels don't have full kitchens versus going out to eat? It really depends on the trip. I'm actually going, leaving tomorrow for Costa Rica with my family, which um, we ha- we are staying in an Airbnb. So it ends up being probably two out of three meals a day that we eat at home. Always breakfast, you know, just mm-hmm. breakfast is easy. Yeah, about half and half. It's really nice to be in a place and not feel dependent. You know, you just get fatigued from eating out. But then there's the trips that I do for work that yeah, there's, you know, it's like, you're eating two or three dinners, so there's no cooking involved. But I am big on the room service in the morning. I get like two pots of tea. (laughs) And then I always bring a Zojirushi with me. So I have like my heat insulated (laughs) traveling beverage bottle. I get my two pots of tea. Immediately one of them gets poured into the Zoji to like stay hot while I drink the first one and like stay in bed. So that's... Wow. And then the rest of it is like either reporting or reporting like with a chef where you're going to be standing up and talking to somebody about food all day and then eating several meals for dinner. Yeah. We had a big debate in the office about whether room service was a terrible or a great thing. And it was very divided. People had very strong feelings on it. It's great for me for that caffeine without having to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. That is like the ultimate luxury to me is like to stay in bed and drink the tea and then deal. But I I think food is like ridiculous. Like yeah. a bowl yeah. of berries for 30 bucks. Like skip it. I once yeah. stayed at a hotel where I, I had to pay $20 for a half oh, grapefruit. No. So, <laughs> half a grapefruit. Must have been really good grapefruit. <laughs> it, was, it was a perfectly fine grapefruit. The sugar sprinkled over it was... Okay. A nice, a nice touch. <laughs> like Fancy Shetch flourish. It's small sprinkles of gold. <laughs> How do your trips go, Bria? It sort of depends on where I'm going. Like if I, we do a lot of national park trips. So like in national park towns, those places aren't usually known for their food. So we'll get an Airbnb and we'll cook. In fact, one of the best parts about traveling with my parents and especially my extended family is that there's always a spreadsheet that goes around before we leave for the trip. And on the spreadsheet, it's like, okay, Sangeetha is bringing the Tetley tea bags and the cardamom (laughs) pods. Like Ritu is bringing dal. My mom will pre-mix masalas that she can like auto, she can make like three different subsies and a dal out of. And then, of course, we will get like our paranta lady to make like 20 parantas. So we have breakfast like taken care of. (laughs) 
Um, and this See, is my just family like- is just, I wish we had an Excel sheet. It's just like a family text thread that's like, or it'll be like 35 emails, you know, where I'll like say to my husband, like, did you read the last email? And he's like, I stopped yeah. reading those emails a long time ago. It's the back yeah. of your, it's like the trunk, just like all coolers. No, I mean, it's just literally just like in the suitcase. We just like just slip in it. the bugia, the package things. It's it's really funny. But if it's not that, I try to eat out. I try to eat out as many times as I can because as a food journalist, you know, you're always sort of looking for something that's going to be exciting and new. So, you know, if I'm not in a place that I'm interested in, I'll eat it. I'll eat at Airbnb. But otherwise, and, and often like Carla, I'm reporting. So it's very often like the two, three dinners in a night situation. So... Yeah, I think there is something to be said. I mean, Carla, what you're talking about, your memories of Montauk. I mean, I, some of my favorite sort of food travel memories are being on vacation somewhere and someone cooking a brilliant meal. Oh, yeah. And, and, and it's so much tied up with the place and the type of trip. Like one of my favorite memories is having like fresh clams on Fire Island after like me and my friends had gone like clamming with a bucket and like drunk beers and like got our clams and then bought them back and put them <clears> on the grill. And I was staying with my family on the Isle of Skye in Scotland, which is incredibly remote. And it's, there's like one pub near where we were staying and we'd been there every night. So then we like cooked a big sort of crab feast. Mm. And again, that actually was my favorite meal of the entire trip. But again, if I'm going to be in like Tokyo, I'm not going to be cooking in my Airbnb. Yeah, right. That reminds me of, I think one of my favorite food memories of all time was when my family went to China in like, it was like 2001. We were all vegetarians at the time. So the options for us were really limited. And so like we were starving. We had just gone out to pizza and the pizza wasn't actually pizza. And we were so bummed and we were in our hotel room. And then we're staying on this floor and we like see this Indian family and they kind of like sense that we're really bummed. And this like Indian dad just like beckons us into his hotel room. And my whole family is just like, yeah, okay, we'll go into this like Indian dude's hotel room. (laughs) And we go into his hotel room. He had somehow like jiggered some sort of setup in his hotel where he was like cooking like a makeshift biryani in his hotel room (laughs) in Beijing. And my family, like I thought my dad was going to cry when he (laughs) saw that biryani. And we were like, we are so hungry. And we just like biryani that he had just brought like in a Ziploc bag and it just reheated for us. And it was the greatest thing I'd ever eaten at the time. What a legend. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) And just like so ballsy just to be like, yeah, come. I I feel like I understand what you want. Like come into my hotel room. Um, and my dad, like, no questions asked, was like, yes. yes. <laughs> I feel like I have the low browest of all favorite family food traditions, which is that my family, we usually take beach vacations so that everyone can just, like, totally disconnect. No Wi-Fi, no nothing. And we get a pack of double stuff Oreos for every single day. There are four of us, mind mm-hmm. you. And we eat the whole, like, everyone gets a whole tray. <laughs> and over the course of the day, I'm like, is this the fact that we haven't gained, like, 700 pounds from all these vacations. But we're going on a trip to New Zealand, and it's our first, like, active vacation in a really long time. And I'm, like, super bummed that the Oreo right. diet will not be continuing. Oh, dear. I know. It's such a bummer. I mean, why not? Why can't you just do yeah, it? You're exercising. Yeah. You could have more yeah. of the Oreo diet. <laughs> I will bring that up in our next family email. Or maybe you'll find they have like other different cool flavors of yeah, Oreos. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. Zealand, yeah, you know? that's very They likely. might have like Tasmanian honey flavored um, stuffing. Wow. Like setting the bar high. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm curious just to go back to the exciting news that you guys have, which is that you're both putting out your first cookbooks, first cookbooks, right? Yeah. In the next two months. And I'd love to know just like how you went about pitching your cookbooks and putting them together. I know it's probably been a long journey for both of you and it's exciting that it's about to happen, but yeah, curious how that whole process got started. It does take a really long time, (laughs) even just kind of the concept part before the pitch, but basically in a sentence, I wanted my cookbook to be a cookbook that would make you excited to go shopping for food so that all of the framework around cooking would actually inspire a different way to shop for food where you eliminate drudgery, schlepping, you know, dread and really get back to like the idea that shopping for food is what gets you excited to go home and cook because you have flexibility, you have information, you have knowledge, you have confidence. So that was kind of where I was coming at it from. And then the publishers, of course, are like, okay, but it's not a food shopping book, right? Because (laughs) those don't sell. And I'm like, no, but you know, everybody loves to say that like, the first ingredient in a good meal is is great ingredients or the first step in a in a great recipe is the best ingredients. I'm like, cool. So can we talk about that part a little bit? Because you can say that you can't be a good cook unless you have great ingredients. And people just say that and don't say what would be the next logical step is like you have to go and get them. You know what I mean? Um, and I feel like people really don't know either what to look for what to do when something isn't there that you expected, how to start cooking something you've never cooked before. So like a lot of that was exciting and fun for me. I'm curious, Carla, how did your book come about? Was that something that you like knew that you wanted to do or were people like, we need a Carla book? No, it was more me being like, I'm going to do this thing because I had a few friends who had done, who had Mm -hmm. gone for it. And I was like, I can do it too. It was like some combination of competitiveness and (laughs) ego, you know, like I can do that too. Also, even though I have this like perfectly nice life, you know, that, um, so I just kind of wanted the challenge and felt like I had you know I could do it and I kind of wanted to take on a project like that and then of course flash forward like seven months later when your manuscript is due and you have a full-time job and I was like why did I think this was a good idea like I had a perfectly nice life (laughs) like that is now ruined like books are things that people like take sabbaticals for exactly I was like no no it's cool I get it done and I did but it you know and I'm happy I'm happy but at the time I was like what the heck like (laughs) yeah no one I had no it's like having a kid you're like seems like a great idea and then you do it and then you have an infant and you're like why did I do this so and then you get over it but yeah Priya what was the moment you know when when you thought hi I've been writing about these sort of similar themes for a while maybe this is a book so my book was not my idea uh I was working at a food magazine called Lucky Peach and we were producing a book about vegetables called Power Vegetables and um the editor emailed out like a list of recipes that he was like, this is the final list of recipes. And I sent like a very sassy email back being like, there are no Indian recipes in this vegetable cookbook. Like that can't be like you need Indian recipes. So he just responded and was like, okay, send me some. So I emailed my mom and was like, okay, can you send me these five recipes and I need them tomorrow. My mother is like a full, has a full-time job. She's very busy. She stayed up all night. Oh, <laughs> wrote, wrote so these recipes sweet. for me. 
<laughs> sent them back. I forward them to our recipe developer. And like a week later, our recipe developer comes up to my desk and I'm really worried she's going to let me down. And she's like, has your mom ever written a recipe before? And I'm like, no, she's never written a recipe before. And she was like, these recipes were written nearly perfectly and they were all great. Like we're putting all of them in the book. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was like, wait, excuse me? It was this shock to me. I mean, I guess my mother is a trained software programmer, so maybe there's a connection between coding and recipe writing. I, that's, sure. but I was just, we were, <laughs> I was shocked. My mom was shocked. And then the editor of our cookbook, um, this woman named Rika Alanik, just fell in love with my mom's recipes. And after I left Lucky Peach, she had coffee with me and was like, I want a book just of your mom's recipes. Also, like, my mom says sort of like I, I talk about her a lot because I really look up to her and respect her she's sort of this badass software engineer who also dresses really elegantly mm -hmm. and throws amazing parties and sort of grew up traveling around the world for her job which was she worked in the airline industry and sort of was this amazing role model and kind of leaning in before I guess it was cool to lean in and I guess she was like, I want a book that is not only sort of these Indian American sort of hybrid recipes, but sort of tells them a modern mother daughter narrative, which is different than the one that I feel like this sort of Gilmore Girls style, like your mom is your best friend. She's like home waiting for you, whatever. And also a book that sort of encapsulates like what does the modern American family look like? It's not it's not all not all white people living here. Um and just sort of the wonderful ways that when immigrants come to this country, they sort of take the food of their home and combine it with the food they found here. And so a, a book proposal was born. And yeah, I mean, I was just so I was shocked that people were interested in it, to be honest. Like my mom's food is never something that I ever imagined that I would write about. It was just the food that I grew up eating. It was like sort of delicious, but unremarkable. But then I started explaining things to people and people were like, oh my God, that like blows my mind. Like the concept that we're, I'm doing this thing with Bon Appetit. And uh, one of the concepts is this idea of a chonk, which is like tempering spices in oil. And I remember like telling this to my cookbook photographer and she was like, chonk, how amazing. And my mom was like, I mean, literally I do it every night. I right. just, this is unremarkable to me. <laughs> Um, but I like sort of said, I was like, yeah, you can put it on like noodles or steak or nachos. And someone was like, chonk on nachos. <laughs> it's like, so it's just, it's been kind of cool sort of seeing, I mean, it's, it's indicative of the fact that a lot of these techniques are not, maybe not written about enough or as much as they should be, but it's been a really cool journey. And my mom wrote a hundred recipes for the book. My dad did all the dishes. He did all the grocery shopping for the photo shoot. Um, it was really a family effort. I'm really proud of that. And so I'd love to know, you both have your first cookbooks coming out. Obviously, you have both turned to cookbooks for advice over the years. What are some of your favorite female written cookbooks? Mm, um, I've written about this. I think I wrote about it on Healthy-ish. Um, Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone by Deborah Madison was probably the first cookbook that I really felt like was encyclopedic and she had a method for every single thing and some were simple and some were more complex, but the amount of information in that book, there were like very few photographs and it was every vegetable, grains, spices, how to shop the farmer's market. I just really learned so much from cooking and reading through that book. And another 
book here that I keep at the office and I use, I refer to a lot for both ideas and information is um, Uncommon Fruits and Vegetables by Elizabeth Schneider. And it also reminds me of like why books exist because the people who write them, I'm not including myself in this, are scholars who like are recording information that will be true for decades and decades and decades, which is as we turn more to digital sources and for research and for, you know, I just watched my son researching papers and I'm like, you know, Wikipedia is like not a good source of information. (laughs) And just that idea that like a thing that it is just what well reported and researched all the way back and historical and like Mm -hmm. really she was amazing. Yeah. So those, those two mean a lot to me. Um, an invitation Indian cooking my mother Joffrey is one that I will find myself constantly referring back to just her encyclopedic knowledge of Indian food and regional Indian cooking is amazing to me same with Tharla Dalal who's another she was sort of the like Julia Child of Indian cookbooks and was the first one of the first people to sort of codify Indian cooking her books are just like very wonderful and playful and aren't sort of trying too much to be a thing. Like, in fact, they're like actively ugly, but I just love that about them. These sort of like really kitschy books that existed in like the 80s and 90s. And then a book that like really taught me to cook was um, this book, Small Victories by Julia Tertian. Julia Tertian, I think, just has like one of the best cooking voices. Like you can read her head notes and follow along and feel like she's actually there in the kitchen teaching you things. Like there are just things I never learned how to make, like, you know, meatballs. And she teaches you how to make those and makes you feel really proud of what you're making. So, yeah, that book really opened up a lot of doors for me. Amazing. Well, we will link pre-orders for both of your cookbooks in the post. So look in the show description for the show notes and you will find all of that information there. If people want to keep up with you guys, I know that you are both regularly on the Bon Appetit YouTube channel, but where can people find you elsewhere on the internet, Carla? Um, on Instagram at Lolly Music, L-A-L-L-I Music. And Priya? And Carla also is hilarious on Twitter, oh, too. Okay. <laughs> I'm a Great very Twitter. intermittent Twitterer. <laughs> but, like, when she tweets, they, like, land with them. <laughs> they land. <laughs> to wait. You have to wait for them to percolate, you know? I'm going with, like, some people are in there with, like, volume. Yeah. I'm going the total opposite. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at PK Gourmet. G-O-U-R-M-E-T. I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor. And I'm at Lale Hanna. And if you happen to be in Austin on March 11th, we will be doing a live podcast at Holy Roller in Austin at 11 a.m. And you can find links to Eventbrite to RSVP on our website. <laughs>